enthusiastic about this program and very grateful for this way of life. It's terrific. Can you hear me? Okay. Um, first, I'd like to thank David and the committee for the invitation. And uh, Terry who picked us up at the airport and spent some time with us, made us feel at home. And um, in the hospitality here, everything goes around. And, uh, I had a fortune to come early enough yesterday that I could hear the speaker at 9 o'clock last night. And, and Bob really gave a wonderful AA talk. I, I'm glad I was here. And, uh, you know, guys. <laughs> several of my close friends that's going to participate this weekend <laughs> and uh, Vince and I we really grew up in Alcoholics Anonymous together you know and he's going to speak tonight and, and uh, Nancy this afternoon and we have known us for each other for a long time you know and, and Karen you know my reason for being here <laughs> 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 yeah, it has gone on for quite a while. So, you know, I I have a lot of friends in this room that I love very much. But you have never seen me before in a very short while. You will know me very intimately. And that's just one of the neat things that happens in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, that we can know each other on that level. You know, I come into these rooms these days and there's always some old guy that says, oh, him again, you know. <laughs> you know I, <laughs> a while back I was invited to participate in Flagstaff Convention and my host there was an old fellow like myself and, and I asked him, I said, you know, you invited me here seven years ago, 11 years ago, 19 years ago and 27 years ago. I said, why do you invite me again? And he said, I wanted to hear you one more time before you die, you know. <laughs> I am probably the most famous substitute speaker on the West Coast. It started long ago. You know, sometimes the circus speakers they are invited to two different locations the same weekend. And 30 years ago, Dr. Paul, you call him, he was only a year sober, but he was already a circuit speaker. And he was invited to Vancouver, Canada, and to Hawaii the same weekend. And his wife, Max, wanted to go to Hawaii. <laughs> so they said, why don't we send John to Vancouver, you know. <laughs> so that was my first big deal. It was a big convention. I was 4,500 people there. And a guy named Corky Berg picked me up at the airport, took me to the hotel while everything was going on. And uh, we stood around, talked in the lobby, and everybody was milling around. And this lady came up to Corky and said, Hi, how are you? He said, I'm really fine. How are you? And she said, You don't remember me, do you? He said, Sure, honey, but I'm rather busy with this gentleman right now. So she left, and I said, Corky, she wanted to talk to you. I mean, you don't have to babysit me. Everybody are friendly. So go and talk to her. So he left and came back 10 minutes later. I said, that's the damnedest thing I ever run into in my life. I said, what happened? Well, I came over there, and I said, hi, how are you? And she said, you don't remember me, do you? And he said, I said, yeah, what meeting did I meet you at? 
And she said, for God's sake, man, I was your second wife, you know. <laughs> it was a little bit of a blackout, I suppose. You know? <laughs> I don't think I'm too presumptuous. If I say that some of us here in this room this morning sit with a bunch of burdens and lots of if-onlys. But be that as it may, we are here in these rooms are still the lucky ones because we have a chance. Lots of people have this thing called alcoholism, doesn't have a chance, and for various reasons. For the record, my grandfather died from alcoholic delirium in 1910. He lived in a 2,000-acre place out of Stockholm. They were breeding racehorses. And, uh, but he died from alcoholic delirium. My father had a problem with his liver in 1927, and nobody knew anything about this illness then. He was a giant of a man. He radiated vitality. Women adored him. Men envied him. But he died three years later, and he only weighed 130 pounds when he died, and he didn't want to die at all, and he didn't have much of a chance. I was eight years old then, and it is something to see a beautiful human being like he once was. You know, he was six foot two, and when he touched you, realized his strength, but in three years he had deteriorated absolutely nothingness. My father was an aristocrat. He was very vain and proud and arrogant, but he was also a very loving person. But I was in violence, and thanks to our program, I have been able to deal with that. Ninety-nine out of hundred meetings I go to, we finish with the Lord's Prayer. And I said, line is as forgiven as I forgive those who trespasses against me. And I assure you that there was stuff in my inventory I wish I could be forgiven about. Then we can't have two standouts here. I'm supposed to be forgiven. I'm supposed to have an opportunity for a new life. But anybody that did something to me, <laughs> justice for them or whatever you want to call it, it's an important point. Because if we don't address this issue, we will come in as victims and we will remain victims. And it will interfere in our, interfere in our own recovery. And that's why I bring it up. My older brother didn't have much of a chance for another reason. He had a little bit of pride and seems to be a commodity that we can't afford the luxury in this outfit. Twenty years ago now or more, he, he lived in a castle outside Stockholm, had a beautiful family, you know, and, uh, and everything seemed to be all right. He made 150 grand a year, spoke six languages fluently. Uh, he carried a Swedish flag in the Olympics on three occasions. For 18 years, he lived in a room that cost 15 bucks a month to live in. Drank a fifth of whiskey every day and every night, and 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 uh, and nothing seemed to be wrong with him, you know. I tried to 12-step him a few times. His drunk organ wine was kind of similar, but I wrote him a letter, a page and a half, what I used to be like, and three and a half pages about all the wonders that has happened to me since I joined the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I got a postcard back. <laughs> said, dear, dear John, I'm sorry to hear about all your problems. <laughs> 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 I mean, so much for identification. I, I flew to Stockholm in 1978 and spent a couple of weeks with him. I invited him out here. I took him to AA meetings. He died 18 years ago from yellow yonders. Yeah. My younger brother has gone through scripts. 
in La Jolla twice, first time was 17 years ago, and they told him that his liver was shot and he couldn't drink alcohol. Carly said, you can't drink that booze anymore, your liver is gone. They told him that for 90 days. He doesn't drink the way I did, and that's all he's looking at. He kind of have six, seven whiskeys before dinner, two kinds of wine, coffee and brandy for dessert. <laughs> it's kind of elegant. <laughs> Sometimes with candlelight dining at his place. It's really bullshit the whole deal, you know. <laughs> and he's still drinking. And sometimes we wonder, what's wrong with people like my brothers? There's nothing wrong with them. Alcohol did something for my older brother to the day he died. It's still doing something for my younger brother. And then that's, that's the nature of the illness. And that's why I said in the beginning, you and I are the lucky ones because we have a chance, because of the evidences in these rooms that people like you and I, the way we drank and carried on, we can change and live without it and have fabulous lives. And as far as I'm concerned, that's what the program of Alcoholics Anonymous is all about, how to live good out there without it, you know. I talk to newcomers. I love the feelings in these rooms for our newcomers, and I like being a newcomer myself. It's very important to me. And I like to share with you why I like to feel like a newcomer. You know, I mean, what I mean with a newcomer, when I had, when I had been to, to enough meetings when I first came in and I realized that that was a solution to my dilemma, and it happens here in rooms like this, you know. And uh, I hope I never forget the last year I drank, because I compromised on everything I believed in or stood for. I couldn't live a function without liquor. I didn't dare to go to sleep if I didn't have a fifth of whiskey in the refrigerator because I had to have it when I woke up. And if I ran out of booze at midnight, I usually called an associate of mine in Baldwin Park and said, hell, next week, you will owe me $150 on this particular job, but if you give me 20 bucks tonight, you won't have to pay me the 130 next week. And at over 100 mile around trip at midnight, I'd pick up $20. I didn't dare to buy any booze in Baldwin Park because then I wouldn't make it home. And when I came home to Anaheim, where we lived at the time, I bought a fifth of Imperial Bourbon for 485. And then I was safe, and I had to live like that, and I hope I never forget that period of my life. Some of us, you know, we get a little well, and get a few dollars in our pockets, and bedroom privileges again. <laughs> forget how it really was. In fact, Karen cut me off six months before I came into AA. <laughs> She really ran out of humor out at the end, I tell you. <laughs> she stood down and looked at me one evening and said, I wish you could find a girlfriend so I wouldn't have to fool with you. <laughs> she said, you take forever. <laughs> After sobriety, if you take forever, it's very commendable. <laughs> you know, I, you realize I was very sensitive those days, you know. The other reason why I like to remember that time in my life, that I had been in here for about 90 days, and Phil Petty talked one Sunday morning, and he stood up here and said, if you keep going to meetings, you will wake up one morning and realize and find out that you can function without alcohol. And it is not necessary to drink anymore, and you have a way to go. And I sat in that room, and I said, my God, I've experienced those feelings. 
And it was the first time here it dawned on me that I wasn't hooked anymore, that I had some degree of choice over my own actions. And I'd already started to experience a freedom here that I hadn't had for a long, long time. And I hope I never forget that period in our college. The knowledge that I wasn't hooked and I was free, I hope I never take it for granted. Those are the two reasons why I like to remember that time in my life. You know. I didn't start to drink until I was 31 years old. I know it doesn't sound so promising right now, but that's how it was. But I'll share with you how I was when I was young. First of all, the reason why I didn't drink when I was young. When my father died, I promised my grandmother I was never going to drink. So I didn't drink. When I was 19 years old, I'd gone to college a year. The war broke out. I went in the Air Force for two and a half years. And after that, I went back to college for a year and a half. And I was selling at night and trying to help my mom. It was very important to me to play the man or the house part because my older brother was different. He was brilliant in school. He had scholarships to university. And everything was mapped out for him. But I was different. And I could never figure him and me out in the first place. You know, this fellow, he never opened a book yet ace in everything. I could study to one in the morning. I still failed. It really bothered me. <laughs> Fuck it, it's still bothering me. I, I still <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I tell you, I, can, I try real hard, and I can be good for a short time. But when the bottom fell out or something negative happened, I couldn't figure out why I was such a screw-up. When I was young, I had an unbelievable inferiority complex. I'm a perfectionist on top of it. It's not a good combination. I contemplated suicide a lot because I knew if I died, I would be my dad. And you see, when my father lived, I was security, prestige, and respect, and those things. And I tell you what I did when I was young. I just faked it. I pretended I was really together. I was very noisy and opinionated, and that gave me some false courage, and that's how I was when I was young. When I was 31 years old, I was employed by this door factory in Alhambra. My boss was alcoholic, and he taught me how to drink every day. And a new life began for me. It was the most fantastic period in my life when I came in there, you know. I never drank before. You know, we had early times at 8 o'clock in the morning, Cocktails at 10, <laughs> martini lunches from 12 to 2.30. I made a couple of calls in the afternoon calling the big developers there, you know, and, and uh, went back to the office and typed up bits from 6 to midnight like whiskey. And I thought I'd land in heaven. I used to come home to Canada, you know, this building business is out of this world. <laughs> you know, I never felt this good in my life, you know. And, you know, I... I drank, in retrospect, I drank a fifth of booze a day from day one. For two years, I was never drunk, never hungover. I just felt good. <laughs> and there's something wrong with your system where you can drink that much liquor and not get in trouble. I had an enormous capacity. And my emotional being, you know, as, as afraid and I was preoccupied with this complex of mine, you know, all my life. And that damn thing gave me courage. You have no idea. You know, and I, I call on these developers, you know, you know, the tack building out there was a fantastic thing, you know. We were, my company, were, we were the first people to manufacture pre-hung door openings. And I'm calling on these developers, maybe two hours a day for the rest. My boss and I, we just sat and drank and talked about what we're going to do tomorrow, you know. And it was really a screwy deal, you know. And a year later, I sold so many doors, they couldn't pay me my commission. 
So they gave me one third of the stock of the company, and it was a terrific time in my real my wife. You know, I met her when she was seventeen in Stockholm. We came over here, and to uh, start a new life in America. We, you know, we Sweden after the war didn't have any dollars. I was very well off over there, but we came over here and started out with nothing. And a few years later, I'm I'm own part of one third of a door factory, and I tell you, you. It was a terrific time in my life, you know, and uh, and what I'm going to give you now is the highlight of my drinking career. You know, when you own a place, you're general manager, you're sales manager, which I was, but I was also the truck driver, delivered all the doors I sold. And, you know, I used to be up there in Alhambra. Now, before, you know, I just hadn't drank all the time. Now, we had all those orders. I had landed a hunt, several hundred thousand dollars worth of orders down to San Diego with my American Housing Guild. And now I'm up there in Alhambra and I'm pre-fitting these damn door openings and loading this two-and-a-half-ton truck, you know. And I'm there all day and all night to come home to Corona del Mar where we lived in a little house on the bluff there and uh, come in there at 3.30 in the morning, carrying out a hot bath ready for me, and I slid in the top down and lit a camel and inhaled, you know. <laughs> and she came in there with a pitch of martinis, sat down and drank martinis with me. 3.30 in the morning, it's really living, you know. And I, lay, and I lay down in the tub and I smoked that camel and I drank that martini and I spit it out the pimento, you know. You know and, I, and then I used to say, you know, I'm just an immigrant and I own the goddamn place, you know. You know. <laughs> Eight years, eight years later, they fired me from my own door factory. It was really crazy. <laughs> you know, we have three beautiful girls and a son. We took them, we took them to church on Sundays. We did everything right to be Americans. The only problem with that church business was the last four years I drank. I was a morning drinker, and she usually inspected me there on Sunday morning. Well, was a girl, and she looked at me with those little beady Alan eyes, you know, and <laughs> said, not today, you know. And that hurt my feelings when she took off down the street with the kids in the car. I had to stand there in the corner at home, so sometimes I ran down the block after her, screaming and hollering, you know, and my neighbors were outside talking about the lawn problem, and here I came running by, you know, and Sometimes I was strangely clad, you know. <laughs> she saw me in the rearview mirror coming after that in my pajamas, you know. So she stopped down the block and waited for me and rolled down the windows. And, What's the matter now, you know? And I said, don't forget to pray for me, you know. <laughs> When I got there, I really didn't belong, you know. God, I tried, you know. I, you know how my life was at that period in my life, you know. I drank 24 hours a day, but I couldn't drink whiskey first thing in the morning, then I would get sick. So I discovered codeine cough medicine. So I had two double shots of codeine cough medicine that calmed my stomach down so I could have a couple of shots of whiskey, you know. Then I brushed my teeth and walked around with small steps and tried to look effective. <laughs> and when I passed inspector and came to church, you know, I sat down, looked sincere and hummed a lot, you know. I, I could take the sermon 20 minutes max, 
then I had to have a drink. <laughs> Twenty minutes into his talk, I just got up and said, oh, screw them all, you know. I mean, and I went home and I drank grand scotch those days and played good music and became very spiritual. <laughs> played Stan Getz and Dave Brubeck and Labouame and Coleman Hawkins and the big bands, you know, that's what I played, you know. After sobriety, I even played Pink Floyd and Brian Ferry. I don't know. <laughs> Dark Side of the Moon, you know. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. You know, one. You know, that, that's how it was for me those days. And Kenny uh, one day says to me, you know, you know, I never had any problem with alcohol until I tried to stop drinking. <laughs> it's in that novel. You know, she said one week, she said, you drink too much. I said, what are you talking about? She said, Johnny, you drink way too much booze. So I said, then I'll quit. And then I couldn't quit. And that's when it all began. Because when I had been off the sauce for a couple of days, I got the shakes. And the two shots of whiskey stopped the shakes so I could function and work. So then I had to con myself into why I had to have a couple of drinks all the time. And then I lied about it, then I was hiding from then on, it got worse. When I was into two years of, you know, uh, two years of drinking, I was up to two-fifths of whiskey a day. The last year I drank, last ten months I drank, it didn't matter if I drank a fifth or three-fifths of whiskey a day. I also drank two bottles of coating and cough medicine every day and six anacins four times a day, and I was absolutely weird. You know? <laughs> there was, I couldn't get drunk and I couldn't get sober, and the guilt was on all the time, and there was no relief, and I just thought I was going crazy, and I probably was. And this is a terrifying time in our life because we can't tell nobody. I was just afraid that she was going to figure out how I had to live to function, and I know they were going to put me away somewhere. And sometimes we talk about the alcoholic loneliness, and as far as I'm concerned, there's nothing like it, because it is a total isolation. We drink to live, and we know we are dying, there's no way out of it, and that's how it is. Uh, two years after the shakes began, weird things happened to me when I stopped drinking. One morning at four o'clock, I sat straight up in my bed and looked in front of me, and this big white snake came out of the wall. <laughs> you know, I never saw anything like it in my life, but he came right out of the wall, snow white, had three black eyes. He was, he was this big in diameter and his fattest part, and he was 23 feet long. And he came slowly across the room, stopped right in front of my face, and started to hiss at me. You know. I could even smell him. Kind of a Peralta high, sweet mortuary. He smelled... He smelled like death, you know. <coughs> and I sat down and said to myself, you know, I haven't had a drink for three days, so it can't be the booze. You know? <laughs> the closer he came, the more I screamed. And the noise in my head reached such a crescendo, it was eventually like my brain exploded for my own screams. It finally is a poof, and then I blacked out and fell backwards. That was my experience with it. Karen told me in the morning, she said, something strange happened to this morning around 4 o'clock. She said, you sat straight up, looked in front of you for quite a while, and then you said, eee! <laughs> 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 
<laughs> One night they made love to her when she wasn't even there. <laughs> and that's kind of tricky. She was actually laying two feet away from me there, and uh, she said, "What are you doing over there?" You know. <laughs> And I said, I beg your pardon? <laughs> when she realized what was going on, she started to laugh at me. I started to cry. I felt it was so humiliating to laugh at the guy who was doing his best. You know? <laughs> <laughs> in the morning, I'd been out in the kitchen and had my coat and coffers and my whiskey, and she met me in the hallway, and so well, good morning, lover boy. <laughs> I didn't feel any pain. I just smiled. I said, that's the best piece I've had in a long time. <laughs> and so it goes. Needless to say, I love laughter in Alcoholics Anonymous. To me, that in itself is a spiritual experience. You know, anything that you and I have laughed a little bit about this morning was absolutely the deepest tragedy when it happened. And you and I, in this matter of identification, when it comes to this insanity and this denial, can just laugh about the whole mess. It makes it possible for us to forgive ourselves and change. It's very much part of the recovery program of alcoholics. Now, we started over many times. You do that when you have four kids, you know. Every time I had the best of intention, and every time it got worse, you know. I, uh, one time we were, when we, we was going to start over again, you know, we, we were going to Palm Springs and, and have a little vacation. And, uh, and, and Karen had a suicide attempt at it. She thought I didn't love her anymore and wanted out of it and didn't know how to say it. And, and that's what, not, that's one was not at all the way it was. I could not live a function with alcohol at that time of my life, you know. And I, I was trying to hide it the best way I could, but that's how it was. I absolutely could not function without booze. It was the same year they fired me from my door factory. Now, you should see me about that. You know, I mean, this was my means of income. And when my two partners came down and said, sign off, I just signed off. I said, who needs this headache anyhow? Now I can just drink and be happy. And that's how it is. It'll take everything that's near and dear to us before we realize that there's something really wrong here and go and get, ask some help or whatever's going to happen to us, you know. I tried several things before I came into Alcoholics Anonymous to stop drinking, you know. Oh, you can't hear? Um, you know, I, I had, when I grew up, I had 13 years, two hours a day of religious education. One time I swore on the Bible in front of my wife and kids, and I said, I swear to God, I'm never going to drink again. You know, I never broke my word of honor to you. And I thought if I used this thing that means so much, maybe I can stop. Two weeks later, I'm drinking again. I went to a minister for counseling every week for an hour for 18 months, and I, and I leveled with him. And he told me one time, he said, you have to ask God to help you. And I said, Walter, you are a good man. I'm not. You don't talk to your wife the way I talk to mine when she looks a little strange to me. So God doesn't want anything to do. I tried that stuff. 
And that gentleman, he read a big book of Alcoholics Anonymous to find out how he could best help me. And he realized through the book of ours that him and I, we lacked identification and that I had to find my bottom photo down alone. He even suggested a program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I had not any idea what this meant at all, Alcoholics Anonymous. When he would, wouldn't talk to me anymore, I went to a psychologist in Santa Ana. I spent $2,000 with this doctor. That wasn't anything he said to me that my wife didn't tell me for free three times a day. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't anything he said to me either that wasn't the truth. Everything he said was the truth. One time he stood out, looked at me, and said, you know what's wrong with you, John? And I said, tell me, Doc. And he told it all, all my secrets and all my emotional problems. And I said, Doctor, you're absolutely right. And that's why I drink because I can't stand myself the way I'm put together. And then he laid on me, I hurt my wife and my kids when I did. So what do you do then? You do what I did, I went in the wagon, and the tragedy with that, at this stage of the deal, he simply did, the more sober we become, the more, the more we realize how, hurt our, how we hurt our loved ones, and that in itself rises us back to drinking again, because that's the only way we know to get out from under the guilt, and so it is. There's a lot of capable people in the field of alcoholism today, but I sure don't envy them, because the nature is still the same today as when I came in. As long as alcohol is doing something for us, it's impossible for anybody talking out of using it. And that's the nature of the illness. And that's why I said in the beginning, you and I are the lucky ones because of the evidences in these rooms. You know. And uh, <coughs> the last Christmas, I came home in the beginning of December, and I said to her, Karen, if I only had a dapper gray Arabian horse, I think I could stop drinking, you know. <laughs> and she looked a little strange, to say the least. Bought this beautiful dapper gray Arabian. He was, and we had to look at the picture. I went up to the London shop in Beverly Hills on Rodeo Drive and bought my outfit. <laughs> this beautiful Stetson hat and a Harris tweed jacket and English yard purse, a Spanish cane, and I wore my father's monocle. You know, I looked really good, you know. <laughs> Got an English saddle and a Kimberwick Kimber special range of stirrups and a martingale. When I made, you know what a martingale is? A little leather strap that goes from the cinch. And there's two chrome rings down that the rings go through. I tell you, we look good, you know. Uh, I was sober with that thing for a day and a half. <laughs> Second day, I had a bunch of martinis for lunch, and I fed off the horse, too, you know. So. <laughs> and then came that last ultimatum, which she stood down, looked at me one morning, and said, you know, for years, because of the children, we have stayed together. But now, because of them, we have to part. And either you go down and try that thing called Alcoholics Anonymous, or you have to leave again. And that's the only reason I went down to that Alona Club in Anaheim. I didn't want to be kicked out again, you know. So I came in there, and there was a lovely lady behind the coffee bar, and she asked me if I had a drinking problem. I said, no, get along famously. Well, can you do something for my wife? She's crazy, you know. <laughs> and that's how it is, and we don't know this is going to work, and we got the cover on base. And I tell you another thing, if I had known how sick I was when I came in, I would never have stayed, because stopping drinking wouldn't have fixed that. And what I'm talking about is now, by the grace of God, 
many of us, had we known how bad it is when we come in here, we would do something more drastic. But there's a line that covers that in the big book, is a small will be revealed. And thank God for that line, and by the grace of God, everything happened to me the next day. I woke up in the morning, I got out in the kitchen, drank my codeine cough medicine, and took a couple of shots of whiskey, and uh, drove down to the Alana Club in Anaheim, and polished off a pint of cigarette seven on my way down there, and came in down and said, please call my wife and tell her I'm here already, you know. And, and, uh, and then I stood on bullshit of why I couldn't be an alcoholic, you know. And, played my music and I fantasized a little bit, you know, and and on and on and on, you know, and and uh, God, I have a beautiful home with a swimming pool and an English bulldog and a horse parked the streets. So how in the hell can I be an alcoholic, you know? And, and there was a couple of guys that said, you know, that son of a bitch will never make it, you know. So. <laughs> and then I went out and had four doubles martinis for lunch and came back and called her for a second time to show how sincere I was. And then as you go home and buy a fifth and say, I've been to AA three times that day. But that was a guy that had listened to me all morning, and he just stood down and looked at me and said, Johnny, why don't you come home with me and let us talk? I said, okay. <laughs> you know, it was so pathetic, you know. You know, I hear many people on this podium say, you know, I rebelled against everything. I told everyone we going to screw them. I, said, I never did. I tried the best I knew all my life, and it still beat me in every area of my life. It really was a disaster, you know. So Charlie Vick was his name. He became my sponsor. And he sat, we sat in his patio, and he told me his story. And that's what I think is important in Alcoholics Anonymous. One drunken talk and two another, and the identification between the two. And when he was through with his story, I realized... He was worse than I was, and he depended more than I did on it, and he was sober. And I said, you were that way, and you don't have to drink no more? And he said, that's right. And I knew he was telling the truth. But I, I tried to wiggle out of it one more time. I said, Charlie, you don't understand. Every time I stop drinking, I get the shakes, and weird things happens to me when I stop drinking. And he said, Johnny, you will only shake for four or five days, and then you never have to shake again. And... Uh, and that was, you know, that that was really some something to hear, you know. And uh, and then that night I went to an AA meeting, and I sat there when they read portion of chapter five that we read out there on my way. I said, "Please, God, help me today to stay sober." And it wasn't a big deal, you know. I always thought the spiritual experience would be something like, "Kaboom!" Yes, John, what can I do for you? <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> But it wasn't like that at all. It was merely a feeling. And my thoughts were these, that perhaps after all this, that's a way for me too. When I came home that night, I said to Karen, I said, you know, I don't have to drink anymore. It happened to me tonight. And she said, your eyes look different. I haven't had a drink of alcohol, any codeine, cough medicine, or strange pills or funny cigarettes since that day. It's 35 years and 10 months and 8 days ago today. <laughs> and you are new, you might sit down and say to yourself, it must be easy for you, have all that time in the program. But it wasn't easy then, and that's what we are dealing with right now. You know, I was not a great success when I came in here. I had a lot of anxieties about my kids. I wanted to be a good father. I knew I wasn't most of the time. 
I was $36,000 in the hole, and they were all small bill and all doing. And Karen's suicide attempt drove me absolutely crazy. It's very hard to rea when you realize that you have destroyed another human being's spirit. But I didn't drink, and I went to meeting. That's all I had going for me here quite a while. But I just like to tell you how new. Those first two months of my sobriety, I couldn't handle nothing. When the phone rang at home, I just pointed at it. And And I just split and ran in in my closet and sat down on the floor and wept. I I was so scared for those phone calls, you know. (laughs) Yeah. So I had about 10 days of sobriety. I sat in a stag meeting and blurted out. I said, you guys don't understand, but I feel so damn guilty. That was an old time. I said, the reason you feel so guilty is because you're guilty.